Hello, everyone. This is Jim Blackburn, and this is a, another episode, a new episode of my podcast, Grit Stories of Resilience. You know, I've been doing these since April, and I've had lots of good guests, but this guest this morning, uh, Jay Neptune, a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, a resident of Wilmington, teacher of ballet to young children, not yet two years old, working in the catering business, a writer who has had one of her first articles published in the digital magazine, The Assembly. And she met and talked with one of the editors there, John Drescher, who wrote to me and said, Jade is really smart, Jim, and you need to talk to her. And he did not know that I think within 30 to 45 minutes after he wrote me on one day earlier this week, I wrote you and we talked by phone. And she's gracious enough to be on the podcast today. She wrote her article that I'm going to, if you want to see it, you should go to the assemblync.com and, and, and read it. It's called The Heartbreak of College Suicides. So today's podcast, one of the most important ones that I've done, is on mental health and campus suicides. And I think the best way to do this interview with Jade is simply to ask a few questions and get out of the way and let her talk. So Jade, thank you for being with me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I remember writing reading your writing and you had said that you've had some mental health issues uh for a long time in the fourth grade i think you said that you remember being in the tell us about that yeah um i have been an anxious person for as long as i can remember i feel like anxiety was probably one of my first feelings that i ever really had i was just a very high strung kid um, but I was homeschooled when I was in early elementary school. And so that was good. I was in my own space and I was with my mom and it was a great like ability to have that. But then when I moved to North Carolina, when I was nine, I was back in public school and I was terrified for no good reason. I didn't have really a reason to be afraid of school. Nothing terrible was happening to me there. It, everything was fine. I was making friends. It was all okay. But within that first, I just was petrified. And every day in the school car line would be me, my mom, and my older brother. And we would like I would get in the car and I would be fine. We would get all the way to the school and I would be fine. And then we would be in the pickup line and I would like see the school in the distance immediately. It was like a flip switch to my brain. And I would throw up every morning before school. For probably the first six months of fourth grade, just pure terror. I was in like the school counselor's office. I wouldn't go home. Like I was just petrified. Like Fridays, I would get home from school. Saturday, I would be bliss. Like, oh, it's a weekend. By Saturday night, I was already worried about going back to school on Monday. And it was just this vicious cycle. And But as a result of some of this, you wrote in your article that you had, from early on, a desire to be number one, 
to do well, to be ahead of the game, to go to to graduate sooner than later. So how did that happen? What what's that about? Yeah, well, I'm the youngest of five. And when you're the youngest of five, everybody kind of has their own thing. And I always kind of struggled with finding my own thing. Um, like my older brother, especially very confident, just incredibly himself. And I was so jealous and all those things. And I was like, if I can't pick one thing that's going to be my thing, like being good is going to be my thing. And so I wanted to be perfect and smart and I just wanted to be like easy like what everybody else wanted me to be like the one you don't have to worry about and that whole thing which to me was just striving to be number one and the best all the time (laughs) outwardly competitive with my peers and other kids it was being competitive with myself which in one way is a good thing because you know you want yourself to be the person that you're competing only try and be better than you were yesterday. You know, all those things are true. But it's when you get to that next level um, that it can be a little touch and go. But I just, I didn't have, I didn't really know what I wanted. And so I just, I wanted to be good. I was really obsessed with being good, with being morally good, academically good, a good friend, a good whatever. But to such an extent that it was, unrealistic and I pushed myself really really hard to prove that I deserved to be wherever I was like I was so like afraid of being like found out like what are they going to find out like oh that I'm imperfect that I make mistakes that I'm human like that was my worst nightmare of them seeing anybody seeing that I was human and a kid and still learning you wanted to be perfect Absolutely. I still do. Let's be real. I still do. (laughs) Well, you graduated from Carolina earlier than most people. How old were you when you graduated from Chapel Hill? I was 19. Most people are just getting started about 18 or 19. Yes. I I I think I was a sophomore when I was 19. Yeah, I would have graduated. Of what would have been my like the beginning of my sophomore college, and I had graduated. I asked you before we got on the air, uh, did you enjoy Chapel Hill in college? And you you hesitated and said, What did you say? What was it like for you? <laughs> I believe my exact words were it wasn't a joy ride, that was for sure. Um I think. There were a lot of factors, one of which being COVID. It was not at all, no matter what I would do personally, if I would have gone to college at 17 or 25, either way, it wasn't going to be a quote unquote like normal college experience because it was during the pandemic, which added a lot of societal pressure. Just the world was going through a huge growing pain. But I went when I was younger than everybody. And so I got there. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any friends. I didn't have anybody who was already there. And so just really trying to find my side, which are all normal parts of the college experience. But I also jumped into working in policy when I got there, which was a really great experience, but also a lot of pressure. You know, like my friends were 
smoothies and scooping ice cream and that like delivering pizza and like the people that I met in school like that was their job and then my job was what felt like determining the fate of someone's career and the health of our community and all these different things and I was like I, I can't even vote <laughs> so that was a lot of pressure and really took a lot more of my college career than my actual academics but there was also a lot of financial pressure I'll expensive UNC it's very expensive and I was very clear that the faster you go the cheaper it is and I was really determined to go 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 and it was also like I needed that so that I wouldn't stop and think too long about anything and so that I didn't have to feel like what if I'm not supposed to be here I just had a lot of imposter syndrome I just had a lot of doubt of if I should be there or not, if I deserve to be there, if other people thought I deserved to be there. So all of those, again, our conversation today, but those mental. The really hard work and really hard transitions that come with college way, it was not the relaxing tailgate go heels experience that I like to have had. And you came to write for the assembly and you wrote about uh, campus suicides or college suicides and the heartbreak of that. And, and you met a, a family in Gastonia who had a son who had killed himself in the last school year. How did that happen? How did you come to do that? Um. Well, so I had graduated, and for the first year after out of college, I was writing and had final. I, I had health insurance because I was a state employee. I was working for the law school, and so I finally was in therapy, and I got on medication in the spring. Started looking at my challenges head on and starting to learn to call it what it is that you know mental health is not a dirty word and taking ownership yeah. over and it was like the more clarity I got, the fog lifted I realized that I had my story to tell was an important one but also that there are so many people that I was in school with or that I would never get to I never got to meet that their fog never lifted they didn't get a chance to have the clarity or the time to heal and the story. And, do you and think, it wasn't. Yeah. Do you think that, and you, you write about the fact that you, you mentioned just now that there was a fog in you and you had anxiety disorders and panic attacks and compulsive disorders. Were you able to get any treatment at Chapel Hill for that? So I tried my first semester. It's like my freshman year. I tried to go to TAPS, which is like the Counseling Psychological Center, whatever the whole acronym is. And I was able to do like my intake call where they, you talk to somebody and they kind of figure out what you need to do from there. And they recommended that I needed long-term care, so more than just a couple of that. Basically, that it wasn't a situational problem I was dealing with. It was truly an ongoing mental health challenge, a mental health condition. 
And so they gave me the resources I needed to reach out and be fit with a psychiatrist and a therapist and things outside of the university. Um, so they gave me resources, but basically they were like, because you need long-term care, like we're just not equipped to give you that. Like at most we could give you eight weeks, which isn't anything in the grand scheme of things. And I was like, well, I'm 17. <laughs> I don't have the money to go to therapy and to get medication and all of these things. And so that's where it ended for another year and a half. So I tried to get help and I tried to take those steps, but then like so many people, it wasn't even that I was turned away. It was just, I was kind of given an impossible option for my situation because I didn't have the resources needed to make it an option for me. What do you think your medical situation was or is, I guess? How would you describe it? What do you mean? In other words, what is it that you thought, what illnesses do you think that you had? Well, I definitely had general anxiety. I had had my entire life. That was certain. Um, Did you have panic I, attacks? Yes, I had had panic attacks since I was in elementary school with the whole, like, throwing up at school situation. I had had panic attacks for a long time. But with the new pressure of college and just personal things going on I just it kind of occurred to me that I didn't have to shoulder all of it that I could try and get help and that I kind of needed to it was getting harder and harder to manage myself so I knew that I had those two things but I don't I really developed OCD to the extent that I have it now until the fall when I was like a sophomore in college have you You've been to therapy and on, on medication today, right? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm currently. Have you found that that has helped you? Medication truly changed, and I would even venture to say saved my life. Medication, it was, I'm incredibly grateful that it worked and that I see a difference. Um, I could not imagine living with the brain I was living with before medication for any long so medication definitely helped I think therapy was a great place to start but was not nearly as effective as medication was um but glad that I had the opportunity to take advantage of both do you think that uh the fact that you had some of these mental health issues helped you in talking to this student who took his life at state do you think that helped you understand uh his situation a bit better um well i never got to speak to him personally um but absolutely i think that it's the things where you can't understand it until you do. And then once you do, you can never imagine not understanding it. It's just one of those have to go through it to really know what it feels like. And I saw myself in Ben's story, which was heartbreaking and terrifying. And it was, it was scary, but I understood 
the pressure and where your mind goes in those moments and things like that. So I feel like if anything, it equipped me to have the compassion to tell some of his story that I don't know if I would have had if I hadn't experienced it. Tell us about the event. As we, you mentioned, there were seven students at NC State in yes. the last academic year who have taken their lives that we know of. Ben was one of those. Correct. And you have written extensively about his situation and his taking of his life. If you don't mind, how about taking us back and tell us about Ben and what happened to him? So Ben, he was 21 and he was a junior, his second semester at NC State. He grew up partly in West Virginia and then partly in Tampa. He's the youngest of five. I'm also from Southwest youngest of five, so felt really connected to that part of his story as well. Um, but he was a competitive shooter. He was a competitive rifleist, rifle shooter, um, which brought him to NC State because they had a rifle team at the time. It has since been disbanded, but he started in high school. That's where he really connected with his best friend I interviewed in the story, Matt Sanchez. And he was incredibly talented. He just, he truly was an incredibly talented competitor and athlete. And that took him all the way to NC State on an scholarship where him and his roommate, Roman, um, they both were on the shooting team. They went through that for a few years. Ben was training with the USA. He wanted to be an Olympian. Um, he had a girlfriend who was also in the shooting community. He had a ton of friends. He was very, very smart. He was studying psychology, which is very interesting. He, by all accounts, was thriving at NC State. Um, and then that spring, the rifle team had disbanded at NC State, and he had made the decision to transfer to West Virginia to be on their rifle team also on a scholarship top programs in the country like a really incredible feat to be there he would have been with his best friend from high school Matt they would have been living together all of that was already set in motion he was excited um and then a few weeks later a couple months later that was when he took his life on the same day that he had talked to his dad and his friends and did he call them or did they call him? Um, I believe his dad had called him earlier that day. And just he talked every day. They were very close and they just had a normal conversation. Um, and a couple days prior to that, one of Ben's friends in the shooting community had also taken their life. So I think more than usual, even his parents were just checking in. Everything was fine. Um, and a couple hours later, that was when they received his suicide note and learned that he had taken his life. Did he, did the father try to reach him when he got the note? Or was Absolutely. it already happened? Yeah, or it had already happened? He didn't know. It wasn't clear if it had already happened or not. There are a lot of different details within that, but even if it happened, that those are his parents are going to do everything they can to reach him. So that's kind of how the story starts is with him saying, Benjamin, no texting him immediately. And then he went to 
calling his roommates and his friends and campus police and just trying to do everything they could because Gastonia is not close to Raleigh. So they were trying to do everything they could while also get to NC State to see what was going on and they did everything they could. Did they ever know why he took his life? Um, no, there are no reasons that they understand. I think he explained briefly in some of his note what he was going through and that it had been an ongoing struggle. But, I mean, his dad was very clear. They had no insight to any of the challenges that Ben was secretly battling. His friends had a little bit more information talking about how he was excited to transfer in the following academic year, but he was scared. He was afraid about proving himself and again, like that imposter syndrome. And if he deserved to be there, if he would be good enough, all of these different things. So I think it was just a lot of really big changes in a really short time and a very challenging sport and environment. I remember reading that you said that suicide is the third cause of death in the United States for people between the ages of 15 and 34, I think is what. Yeah. And you fall within that, that group early on in that group. You're a young person of that group. Yes. What do you think five years in you have learned that causes suicide to be so prominent with young people when they have so much to live for. I think about this all the time because I'm very much like a solution oriented person. I view myself and my life and my mental health and all these things as things that can be quote unquote fixed, things that rest and do different things, tackle and everything is a problem to be solved and all those things. And I did therapy and medication and, you know, I take my walks and I drink my water and I do all the things that I'm supposed to do. Right. And I've been very successful and I've been proud of my accomplishment accomplishments and all these different things. But like at the end of the day, the thing that always gets me is like the one thing that is 100% out of your power that you cannot fix that you cannot address. There's nothing to do is being lonely. And so many people are chronically lonely. So many young people, because I mean, you can be alone and not feel lonely, or you can be in a crowded room and feel completely alone. And there's nothing that you can do to make genuine, authentic connections appear in your life or to have the friend that you're looking for or the partnership or any of these things. I mean, there's nothing that you can do about being lonely. And when you're 15, 16, 17, Ben's age 21, my age 20, you have enough context and enough foresight to see around the bend and see that loneliness is not a death sentence. It's not always going to be a chronic thing. It will 
come and go. You don't have that kind of vision to see that for yourself. And it can be very scary because even when you have the degree and all these accomplishments and all these things, if you feel like you're doing it alone, if you feel isolated, if you don't have anybody to share those things with, it kind of takes the value out of experiencing it. And I think especially these statistics keep on rising in the last five years we've had COVID and all these different things happening where we are more physically alone than ever I really just think it comes down to being lonely more than anything and that's my opinion I'm not a doctor but I am somebody who's in this age group and has experienced these things and I do think that is a huge factor that is very difficult to pinpoint and address have you been, when you were in high school and college, and I know you went through college in a hurry, did you have times of being lonely yourself? Absolutely. I'm lonely now. What do you try to to, to make yourself less lonely? Um, mostly try to make myself be less alone. So I'll try with friends and I'll get outside and I'll do little like solo dates where I go and make myself be in the community and try different things and all of that, which indeed does make me not alone. It puts me around other people, but that doesn't really tackle the the problem. It doesn't keep you from being lonely though, does it? No, it doesn't. I'll, I'll let you know if I figure that one out. That would be a million dollar idea if I could solve loneliness. You know, I I think I mentioned to you that the, the the New York Times had done a study based on a Harvard study that loneliness was the number one mental health illness of, of everything. And it was the thing that caused most people to have mental health problems was the, was loneliness. Right. And it's hard for to for people like me to understand how a person like you who is youthful, a college graduate, successful, uh, a beautiful person, vivacious, can be lonely. And yet you are. I know. Because all the things that I've just said are, are don't make any difference in in this in the final analysis, do they? No, and you know, this is Jim Carrey quote where he says that like his one wish would be for everybody in the world to get everything they ever wanted just so they can realize that it makes a difference. It doesn't change anything. And it really doesn't. Like, I have everything that I wanted. I have everything that I worked for. And it doesn't make a difference. And I have the fight to be like, I have these things that I worked so hard for and had dreamed of for so long. And I get so angry because I'm like, I'm looking at this equation, this very black and white thing where I'm like, I have X, Y, and Z. Like, I should feel better. (laughs) I get really frustrated about it because I don't know what that missing secret ingredient is. Because on paper, I should be incredibly happy and fulfilled. But But you're not. No. How do you feel now versus how you felt when you were in school? 
Well, when I was in school, especially after I started really struggling with OCD, it was like, it was just an unreal difference. It was, it was like the way I processed information was different. I was paranoid. I had trouble really, like I was a white knuckling. I grew up on reality and it really didn't even help. Um, it was like, I wasn't even myself at all. And I really struggled with even feeling like I was present and in my body and in my life. And that I knew what was real and fact and what were just my feelings and my worries and all of these things. It just, everything was very muddled and blurry. There was no clarity. Clarity was a joke at that time. And now at least with medication, I feel like I still struggle and things are still difficult and all those things, but I am existing and like living through them as myself, not as like a shell of myself. What, what, what would you want? If someone asked you, what do you want in your life? What would you say? What is it that you want most? Hmm. I want the life I have, but to share it with other people, to share it with somebody else. Like, I don't want a one-track life. All right. You want to be happy. I want to be happy. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's hard for lots of folks to understand that young people aren't necessarily happy and aren't and, and are lonely as you have said. Do you like Wilmington where you live now? You say you do. I love it. What is it about Wilmington that you like? Um, well, I feel like it's human nature to want to go home. I'm from the beach. I'm from like the Gulf Coast of Florida. So it's really nice to be back in the coastal community and be back on the beach and the water. Um, but I love the people here. They're all very genuine and easygoing and caring. And I like that a lot. But it's the beach, definitely. You like to walk on the beach? Absolutely. Where do you see yourself? in five or ten years when you're no longer 20 but 25 or reaching god forbid the age of 30 oh what? god forbid. <laughs> <laughs> um where would you like to be like geographically or like philosophically no, just, you answer however you wish it's up it's up to you chief what would you um, what would you like to do be I want to be a writer. I would love to write a book. I want to be a journalist. Well, you know, I, I started to put down against your name, journalist. And then I put writer because I didn't want to get ahead of the game, you know, because I think the journalism is what you're aspiring to be, you know, and, and it will be a lot of fun because I call John Drescher with all the things he's done. I call him newspaperman. 
<laughs> which is, you know, which is what he is. And so what do you want to write? You want to, you wrote really a great piece about um, Ben and you interwove it with your own self. And what struck me about your article was how you ended it. You didn't end it with the uh, typical novel of a romantic novel where everything is tied up with all the loose ends are tied up. You just stopped at a certain point, you know, and I think that's very dramatic and very, very, very good. So you want to write, what do you want to write about? You want to write fiction? You want to write about people? You want true stories? What do you want to do? Um, I would love to keep writing true, like human interest stories and features like I do now, like the story about Ben and some other things that I've written. But I would also love to write a fiction book one day. There are a ton of fiction authors in Wilmington. It's a very romantic place to live. So I would like to be able to do both, but we'll see. Are you optimistic about the future in your own life? I can't say that I'm optimistic or pessimistic. All I'll say is that I'm practicing being hopeful. And as an honest I'm getting better at it. It is not perfect, even though I'd like it to be, but I am practicing being hopeful about the future. So I'll say that. Good for you. Good for you. Uh, I, you know, it takes one of the things that you haven't mentioned that I will mention for you is that uh, it takes a lot of courage to say some of the things about your own life and difficulties and issues and weaknesses that you've said here in this podcast. I mean, it does. And I think it's so revealing to so many people who will listen to hear why a young person isn't on top of the world with bliss. And so maybe that will come. So I would characterize you as a hopeful writer who wants to be happy. How's that? That works for me. Yeah. Is there anything that I have not asked you at all that you thought I might ask you that you would like to say? Um, I don't. I don't think so. Other than I just hope more than anything that people after they read the story, I hope that they don't think about me. I hope that they think about Ben and I hope that he can continue to live through the lives of all of these other people in our community and get some of the future that he didn't get to have. Because it is truly the greatest misfortune that not all of us get to know him. So I just hope the people keep thinking about Ben and they feel the courage and the bravery that he had also, even though his fight didn't end the way we all would have liked it to. How old was he when he died? He was 21. And he will always be 21, as you wrote. And he will always be 21. And so the hope is that for young people, they will always be older than that, that they will grow up and grow older. 
And I wish that for you as well. Thank you so much, Jade, for doing this with Thank me you today. So I really appreciate it. But you're most welcome. And thanks to everyone who has listened to this. And I hope if you have any questions, you will let me know or comments, let me know. You can reach me at my email address, which is jim at jimblackburnseminars.com. And listen to the next podcast next Monday. But for now, this is a good way to spend the weekend. Thanks, Jay. You take care. You too.